Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. Now, in our world and experience today, there are people who are believers in Christ who have not been baptized for whatever reason. Uh, they never joined a church per se, or perhaps they uh, got through those critical opening uh, moments of, of, of becoming a Christian, and, and it just never uh, has come to them. And, and what we know is that we are saved by the grace of God appropriated by faith. Baptism itself does not affect um, a, a salvation experience. I mean, look, if, if baptism was all you needed to save people, we would just hose people down as they drove by on the road. I remind you of that. So, um, so it's not the act of baptism uh, per se, but it's what it represents and it's what it ties into as an expression of identification with Christ and an appeal uh, to God for a good conscience that his Holy Spirit would cleanse us from our sins by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So Paul can talk about baptism and, and he can uh, refer to it as something that everybody has experienced. But not only that, he can uh, talk about it as something that everybody has experienced in the same way. Uh, you know, it, we might ask ourselves, you know, why do we baptize at all? Um, baptism, especially uh, among uh, Baptist traditions, is, is kind of a funny thing when you think about it. We put you in public and we dunk you in the water. You come out soaking wet. There's no way to look good, all right? There's just no way to pull that off in, in, a, in a classical style. I mean, it's a very humbling experience in many ways. But, uh, you know, why do we do this? And the answer is because Jesus told us to do it. Jesus told his disciples, he said, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, and here's how you're going to do it. You're going to do it by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them everything I commanded you. In other words, what I want you to do is bring people to that expression of faith in me, baptism, identification with the work of the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, and in that baptism they will unite and identify with the saving power of God in Christ Jesus. So we do this because Jesus told us to. Um, if nothing else, that's sufficient reason. When you think about it, baptism is kind of a unique thing that Christians do. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, we get together and we sing songs. A lot of religions sing songs, or a lot of religions have chanting or some kind of group activity. Uh, we get together and we pray. All religions pray uh, in, in one way or another. Um, we get together and we read the Bible. We read our scriptures. Just about every religion has a holy book, a, a set of holy writings of some kind. But when we get together and we baptize, this is something you do not see in any other uh, faith, in any other expression of religion. It is something we do uniquely to identify uniquely with Jesus Christ. And so it's, it becomes a, a, a point of appeal that Paul can, can, can latch onto as he's talking to his readers. They say, yeah, I went through that and I, and I know about that. Jesus gave us an example in his own life of baptism. Uh, you remember that he came to John the Baptist who was baptizing in the Jordan. And uh, when Jesus came, John said, well, Jesus, it seems to me I need to be baptized by you. Um, I, I, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And what was happening there was 
John recognized that Jesus did not need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus didn't have any sin. And John recognized that. But what Jesus said was, he said, let's do this so that we can fulfill the righteousness of the Father. And in doing so, what Jesus uh, did in his own baptism, he identified with sinful humanity. It's sort of like the baptism of Jesus was a preview of the cross when Jesus would take our sins upon himself and he would uh, effect our forgiveness by shedding his blood on the cross. And so when he was baptized, uh, basically he was saying, my ministry and my calling, the reason I'm here is to bring about this forgiveness of sins. So Jesus gave us that example. That's why we are baptized. We are called to be baptized in obedience to his um, commandments. And then, who needs to be baptized? Every believer in Jesus Christ should be baptized. If you read the New Testament, uh, you'll find the normal pattern is someone believes in Jesus and they are baptized. All, immediately, they believe in Jesus and they are uh, baptized. There's uh, one exception to that, that is the thief on the cross, and I think we'll give him an excuse. Uh, for not quite making it to the baptismal waters before he died. But that's, that's the normal experience that all believers shared in the New Testament uh, day. Um, in fact, when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, do you remember this? Uh, he got up in front of the folks in Jerusalem, and they wondered what was going on. He says, well, look, here's what's happened. Uh, God sent his son. God sent Jesus. And and bore testimony to him and validated him by signs and wonders and various things. Um, so God sent Jesus, but you crucified him. What comes next? Oh, come on. God raised him. And that's the gospel. God sent him, you killed him, God raised him. And the people said, what are we supposed to do about it? And here's what Peter said. He said, repent that is, acknowledge that you are a sinner, turn away from your sin, turn away from your self-direction, and turn towards God. So repent. And then he said, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Again, not that the baptism itself forgives the sins, but that in coming to baptism, you're latching on to the work of Christ on the cross that does forgive our sins. So he said, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And by the way, the next thing Peter said was, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He did not say, and you might receive. He didn't say, you'll receive it later. He didn't say, you'll get an intermittent bestowal of the Spirit. What he said was, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So baptism, the gift of the Spirit, life in the Spirit are all wrapped together um, in the New Testament, and that's, that's why every believer needs to be baptized. And what I would um, and encourage you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and uh, for whatever reason you haven't uh, been baptized, seriously consider whether the Lord would, would, would lead you to make that a public testimony of your faith in Jesus Christ uh, through the waters of baptism. Now, when should we be baptized? Obviously, just as soon after the, uh, the, the conversion experience as, as, as possible. doesn't always happen. But here's the thing about baptism. It really is a one-time thing, one-time thing. Now, I know there, there are some people, and I, I, I've had friends who, who said, well, I was baptized as a child, but I don't remember it. I don't remember anything about it. And so when I became a teenager or I became a young adult, I wanted to be baptized again because 
that's when it really kicked into gear. That's when faith in Christ really started to, to take a hold of my life. Up until then, it was sort of like mom and dad. I went to church because of them. But then it became real to me, and I wanted to be baptized again. I understand that. Um, I don't counsel that, but I understand that. Uh, what I can tell you is I was baptized when I was almost nine years of age. I was eight years old, technically, but just a few weeks from being nine years old, and I don't remember much of it, but I can tell you there was one other day in my life that was terribly significant. I don't remember a thing about the day I was born. In fact, it's just hearsay evidence. <laughs> I have to take people's word for it. I'm not, I'm not even, you know, but... The point is, the reality is what matters, you know, not, not how much. And, you know, I said, well, I didn't, I didn't understand it as a child. We don't understand a lot of things as adults. Becoming a Christian is about giving everything you know about yourself to everything you know about Jesus Christ and letting the Holy Spirit work out the rest. Amen. That's what it means to be a Christian. So um, that's why I would, I would encourage you. Uh, but uh, that's why baptism is a one-time thing. Uh, it, sin, it, it signifies the entry into the family of God, entry into uh, his kingdom uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper we observe constantly because that is a proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes again. It's an ongoing expression of our testimony of faith in Jesus Christ and our fellowship together around his shed blood and broken body. So that's why baptism wants Lord's Supper on an ongoing basis. Now, how should we baptize? You know, because there's a lot of different ways that people baptize. Um, actually, as Baptists, we're in the minority, you know. And it's a terrible burden to be so right and not have everybody recognize. <laughs> but the vast majority of Christian traditions baptize infants by sprinkling. That, that's, that's probably the, the numerically more common thing to see. The problem with that is that the word baptize, baptizo in the Greek, is a word that means to immerse or to plunge underneath the surface. And so the word baptize literally means to plunge, to, oh, I just thought of this, oh, this to dunk. You see, we should be dunkers. Okay. But, um, but baptism means to immerse. That's, that's just the meaning of the Greek Word. When the King James Bible people came along to translate it, uh, they realized that. They knew the word baptizo should mean uh, to immerse, uh, but they were stuck with their infant baptism, and so uh, they just turned a Greek word into an English word and created the word baptize, and, and that's why it's uh, used the way it is. But here, the thing is, in the New Testament, what you find are people going into the water and coming up out of the water. Uh, what you have is the picture of, of um, uh, John the Baptist baptizing in the Jordan River. Um, the, the mode of baptism in the New Testament times seems to have been by immersion. And so if we are going to connect up with the New Testament church, uh, we will do that by immersion, that is putting person under the water and then coming up out of the water again. Um, the other reason for that, and we'll see this in just a moment, Paul builds on that imagery, on that picture of baptism. That when a person is baptized, they go under the water, that proclaims that Jesus Christ died and was buried for our sins. See, baptism is all about Jesus. 
Imagine that. It's pointing to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So you go under the water that proclaims Jesus died and was buried for my sins. You come up out of the water that proclaims Jesus Christ rose from the, from the grave. He is the resurrected Lord, and our life now is lived in the resurrection power of Christ. And so baptism symbolizes the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's hard to accomplish with the uh, sprinkling uh, or the pouring um, sort of analogy, but that, that's what Paul uh, builds on as he's um, working at it uh, here. Um, you know, and it really should be for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Peter says that baptism saves us not as, you know, the washing of the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. How can Peter say baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience if he's talking about an infant who is before the age of reason and isn't aware of conscience and, and right and wrong and things like that? Um, also, baptism is a time of testimony and bearing witness. Um, the New Testament pattern is that adults were baptized. Uh, that is, those who were able to understand what was going on. Again, you know, a young child comes and baptized. They understand something of what's going on. They don't understand all of it, but I'm telling you this, I, I, don't, I still don't understand all of it. But God honors the faith of a child when you come with that kind of honesty and that simplicity of that kind of faith. So uh, it is for believers, it is for those who have made a personal decision. It really isn't for children uh, or for infants, I mean. Um, infant baptism, by the way, became um, a common thing about 100 years after the close of the New Testament in the second century. AD. And you can see why that happened. People were um, um, concerned. They, they, were, they were believers in Christ and they had children and they were just very anxious that their children uh, would, would know Jesus and go to heaven. And so why delay it? They went straight to the baptism and started baptizing infants. It's not a New Testament pattern, although it's a historical pattern. When we as um, Baptists went back to the Scriptures, Sola Scriptura, what, that led us to believers' baptism, that is baptism of people uh, who have attained the age of reason, an age of some kind of understanding of what they are doing and what is happening to them. So that's just a little primer on baptism. I hope that's uh, been a little bit helpful for you. Uh, but primarily for our passage this morning, uh, consider that Paul is, is reaching then into the experience of his readers in being baptized and in, in identifying with the death and the resurrection of Christ through the waters of baptism. And he's going to sort of bring out how that experience is expressed in life uh, that uh, shuns sin in that regard, okay? Now, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. I think uh, we're going to read through verse 4. And the reason for that, the reason for that is I plan to go through verse 11 and my voice is about shot. So I think I'm good for four verses this morning. All right, that, that's about it. Now, uh, why we're reading this uh, so far, if, if you were to back up into um, uh, chapter 5, you remember there from your copious notes that you took last week, you remember there that Paul said, as sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You know, and we just rejoiced in that abounding grace. Um, so sin uh, increases and you know, whatever sin you have, God's grace is greater and he gets glory for it. And so now Paul's invisible friend, he's back, Paul's invisible friend is going to say, well, Paul, let's think about the, the logic of that. I mean, if, if when I sin, God is glorified because he gets to forgive me of my sin, why don't we just do a lot of sin? I mean, let's give God something worth forgiving. You know, 
None, none of this little sort of, uh, well, I, I lied to my brother last week. Let's tie one on. I mean, let's give him a lost weekend and everything that, that he can forgive that. Why not sin more so that grace can abound the more? God will look really, really good. The worse we get, the better he looks. And Paul says, if I may paraphrase the Greek, Paul says, don't be stupid. All right. But anyway, so he's going to quote his invisible friend who's, who's saying, why not, why not sin more so that God's grace would be greater and God would get more glory? That's what he's talking about. So in verse 1, it says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, how we thank and praise you for the wisdom that you bestow upon us that we might see the truth of your word and be called to the truth um, of the gospel. Father, thankful that it doesn't depend upon us, but, Father, it simply depends upon your grace. But as we continue in our worship this morning and as we go deeper into your work, remind us again and again that we have latched on to Jesus, our Lord, to walk in his steps, to follow him, to be like him. Father, to make him manifest. Father, so that you would receive the glory as we make Jesus known in our lives, in our words and in our deeds. And I pray this in Jesus' Amen. Years ago, um, I had dinner with James Watt. I don't know if any of you remember James Watt. Back in the early 1980s, he was Secretary of the Interior under the Ronald Reagan administration. And uh, uh, what can you say about James Watt? Uh, he was never unsure of himself. He was never unsure of himself. So there, there was a person in the church who uh, who knew him and uh, asked me to go with him, and, and we had dinner together. So I'm, I'm being introduced to James Watt. Now, now Secretary Watt uh, was a um, Wesleyan Pentecostal, uh, and what that means is that, among other things, he believed that you could lose your salvation. Um, one of the aspects of Wesleyan theology is that um, you are saved by grace, but you keep it pretty much by works. Uh, they wouldn't say it quite that way, but it, it amounts to that. You can lose your salvation. Um, in that regard. And uh, uh, so I'm, I'm introduced to him, and uh, my friend says, this is Wayne Kempson. He's, he's a Baptist pastor. And you know, Secretary Watt looks at me, and he says, Baptist, that's the biggest cop out there is. Once you're saved, you can sin all you want. I wanted to know where that church was, because I had never been in it. And I thought, <laughs> but it was the attitude that... that that sort of distorted what we believe. And, of course, we believe that once we are saved, God keeps us in the perfection of his will, and he carries us through. And though we may sin and impair the graces of God and grieve the Holy Spirit, yet he never lets go of us, and no one can pluck us out of his hand. That is, that is what we believe. But the perversion of that is, oh, well, that means once you're a child of God, you can live like the devil. God doesn't care anymore. Why not sin that grace may abound? That's what Paul's talking about here. 
And, you know, don't be ridiculous. Um, it just doesn't make sense. If you understand what God's grace is, now just, to, just to throw it in in case I don't get to it b- before the, the, the alarm clock goes off, uh, what I just want to convey to you this morning is that God's grace is a compelling grace. It is a compelling grace. It is a grace that saves us and forgives us, but then it's a grace that compels us to live according to who Jesus Christ is. Paul has been talking about the relationship we have with the Father, and he's been talking about the um, kind of reconciliation. We have peace with God through chapter 5. Now in chapter 6, he's going to start talking about uh, really how that works out in our lives. The, the big theological word for it is sanctification. Sanctification comes from Latin sanctum, sanctus, sanct something. And uh, it's just a word that means holy. You know, if you, instead of doing Latin, you wanted to do sort of Anglo-Saxon, you would say, holyization of the believer, how God is making us holy. Think of it this way. When God saves us by the blood of Jesus Christ, he makes us holy at that very instant. See, the word holy means belongs to God. That's what the, the, the word means. It means he belongs to God. A temple is holy when it belongs to God. A priesthood is holy when it belongs to God. The word is holy because it belongs to God. And we are holy because we belong to God. We are dedicated to God. That's the meaning of being holy. So the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are made holy. God declares you are holy in his sight. And so Paul, for example, throughout the New Testament, whenever he's writing to Christians, he always calls them saints. The Greek word hagioi which means holy ones, you belong to God. And so as a believer, you have been declared holy. But having been declared holy, now God is at work to make us holy, to work that out in the reality of our lives. And that's why Paul can say here, what, sin that grace may abound? That just doesn't fit with the grace of God. Because when we were baptized, when we accepted Christ, not only did Christ take away our sin, not only did he take away our guilt, not only did he take away the penalty and the wrath that we deserve, but God also put sin to death. How can sin come alive again? Sin was put to death when Jesus died on the cross. And when he raised, when he rose from the the grave, he was raised so that we might now walk in a resurrected life, in a newness of life. And so the reality has entirely changed. If you think of grace as nothing but a get-out-of-jail-free card, then you might say something idiotic like, let's sin so that God can be more and more gracious in forgiving us. But if you understand that God's grace is a compelling grace, that once he saves us and makes us holy, then he's working to work that out in our lives. And it is incompatible with a believer in Jesus Christ to accept sin in your life. Now, I understand that sin's a part of our lives. John says that in his first letter. He says, look, if we say we don't have any sin, we're, we're kidding ourselves. If we say we, we, we haven't sinned, we're, we're, we're calling God a liar, we're, we're a liar. Says because sin is real. In fact, John says, he, he says, look, I'm, I'm writing these things so that you won't sin. But if we do sin, what? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. 
So sin is incompatible with what Christ has done for us. He has declared us holy, and now he is making us holy. Now, this isn't just a matter of, all right, you know, hunker down, try harder. You guys got to try harder to be holy. Because the grace of God is so compelling that he also gives us the resource of the Holy Spirit. I remind you, Peter said, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will have the very presence of God empowering you, guiding you, leading you, convicting you, reminding you. The very presence of God and his Holy Spirit to bring about that alteration from where you were to where you ought to be. And so shall we sin so that grace may abound all the more and that we can have more and more, more grace? No, it just doesn't make sense because we died with Christ and in that death we died to sin. Now, you see, the, the, the difference is between um, what the Bible teaches and my friend Secretary Watt is that he thought the grace of God got you started, but you have to keep going on your own. And that's a condemnation. The grace of God gets us started, and the grace of God keeps us going, and the grace of God will positively bring us to completion. God will complete this work that he has begun in us, and he will complete it by the power of his Holy Spirit. So as Paul is talking about sanctification, the process of being made holy, he says, look, Christ died just for this purpose so that we'd be in the process of becoming more and more holy, that is more and more dedicated to God and realizing the reality that he affected in our lives when he first saved us. What shall we say? Continue in sin that grace may abound? No. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, that's the grace of God. He didn't just take away the sin. He killed the body of sin. He put sin to death. We died to sin in Christ. That's what he says. You know, all of us who've been baptized in Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, you were created for the glory of God. You were created for the glory of God. And that is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer. He takes us from being in rebellion against him, and he puts us into lives that are giving him the glory. And he gets all the praise for it all the time. That's what I mean when I'm talking about the compelling grace of God. Wonderful, the grace, the matchless grace of Jesus takes away our sin, but it's a compelling grace that now pushes us to live lives of holiness that we might be pleasing to the Father. And so what I'm going to invite you to do this week is just look for ways that the Holy Spirit is leading you to live beyond where you would otherwise, to be obedient in ways that you would not otherwise, to, to, um, to be manifesting the love and the mercy and the kindness of God in Jesus Christ in ways that you would not otherwise, because in doing so, you're realizing what it means to live in the compelling grace of God, walking in newness of life because of the resurrection of Jesus, okay? Let's pray together, and then John will sing us out of here, okay? Father in heaven, thank you 
Thank you for doing it all for us, that we have not had to devise a scheme and come up with a plan, but, Father, that your grace has purpose and plan for us. And I would only ask that you would give us the joy of obedience. Give us the joy of, of surrendering every moment and every place, every relationship to you. Father, that you would be glorified in all that we say, all that we do, with every person that we meet. Christ lifted up in us. And I thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.